Hi, this is Wes from The Mind Killer. We are interrupting your regularly scheduled broadcast today because we had some scheduling issues. So we are going to bring you a supplemental episode where David and I discuss liquid democracy and uh, meander onto a few other topics. And we should have our regularly scheduled episode for you up uh, by this Thursday. So look for it then. Uh, in the meantime, enjoy the episode. Welcome to a special supplemental episode of The Mind Killer. Yeah, so uh, I assume that listeners of our podcast will also uh, be readers of Slate Star Codex. And uh, um, uh, between uh, a recent... Um, a recent-ish Slate Star Codex pop... Yeah. Slate Star Codex post called Studies on Slack and um, a book written by a professor of mine, uh, 10% Less Democracy by Garrett Jones. I think those two taken together actually make a pretty devastating critique of liquid democracy. And if, if listeners don't remember, liquid democracy is a system in which every voter gets one vote. And on what they can choose to do with that vote is either vote directly on legislation or they can assign their vote to a person that they trust. It can be a friend, a, a celebrity, or a professional politician. Um, their vote can be uh, reassigned at any time. It can, it can be taken back to them or they can reassign it to somebody else. And then a leg for legislation to pass, it just has to get a majority of all the votes. Yeah, so um, the I'll summarize the two uh, documents I referenced. So um, the Scott Alexander post, Studies on Slack, is uh, um, essentially uh, exploring the idea of Slack, which is a somewhat common idea in uh, rationalist circles, but basically it's the idea that if you relax the uh, pressure on resources, whether it be time or money or whatever, you can do better than you would if that pressure was more relentless. And the way you get to that better state is basically, um, for other people who have studied computer science, when you have more slack, that allows for more exploration in an explore-exploit trade-off. You aren't so... Uh, so uh, myopically focused on just exploiting the known best way. Uh, when you have Slack, you can do a bit more exploration and try to find new best ways. I do want to say real quick, I have a uh, small critique of this piece, uh, which is in uh, the esoteric teachings. Uh, uh, Scott Alexander calls Slack Slack, and he calls optimization pressure or exploit pressure to exploit or whatever you want to call it, uh, Moloch, and I don't really appreciate that because it's kind of uh, trying to win the, I don't think he's actually trying to do this, but it's, it can sound kind of like he's trying to win the argument by definition because um, uh, Slack is just represented by a fairly nice sounding word while optimization is represented by a literal demon. Uh, so I would propose as an alternative calling Slack Slack and call, calling what he calls Moloch 
uh, optimization or efficiency pressure or whatever. Um, I was also surprised to see the uh, the the Moloch characterization uh, yeah. in the piece, and because uh, he he's written about Moloch before, and it seemed to be a different thing he was talking about. Yeah, and um, uh, if you want to refer to them uh, with demonic names for the esoteric teachings, uh, call optimization or whatever uh, Moloch. And then call Slack Balfagor, who is the uh, demon prince of uh, the the cardinal sin of sloth. Um, so that's just a quick stylistic note. Um, Wes, did you read this piece? And do you have anything you want to say about it before we move on? Uh, I did read the piece. I found it mostly convincing. Uh, but my main takeaway was that there are a lot of situations in which uh, Slack is important. Um, and that relentless optimization pressure will only get you to a local maximum, and you would need slack to get out of that local maximum and get to the global maximum, or the yeah. higher higher local maximum if the global maximum is, uh, you know, not something that's attainable or, or anywhere sort of in the possibility space at the moment. Yeah, and uh, I would recommend you listen or read it, I say listen to it, because there is a Slate Star Codex audiobook podcast, which I listen to instead of reading, because I don't like reading, and I like listening. Um, but you should consume that piece in whatever medium you prefer. Uh, 10% Less Democracy is a fairly recent book by Garrett Jones, the uh, George Mason economics professor. Uh, and in it, he is basically arguing that, um, so he worked as a senatorial staffer for a while, and when he was working on the Hill, he observed that senators who were uh, on the bubble, was the term they used, senators who were up for re-election in the next election cycle, tended to vote a lot worse than senators who were um, two or more years away from re-election. Um, so by worse, he means uh, they would vote for more populist policies that generally economists think are bad, uh, such as regulation, um, trade restrictions, migration restrictions, etc. And obviously that manifests in slightly different ways between the two parties, but the theme is basically the same, that um, senators who were closer to their re-election tended to vote in less economically sensible ways than senators who uh, had a re-election looming. And uh, he's a very thorough empirical economist, so he took this uh, sort of anecdata he got from his time working on the Hill and uh, gathered a whole bunch of evidence to show that it was in fact true. And from this, he concluded that we would have better political outcomes if uh, we uh, extended term periods so that senators were elected for, I think he proposes 10 years. I'm, I'm not sure about these exact numbers, uh, but to give you a general idea, if senators were elected for 10 years, presidents for eight, and uh, congressmen for four, 
than he proposes, we would have much better outcomes because higher proportions of those elected officials would be in that position where they don't have an election coming up as close. Um, and so they're freer to vote for good policies. Uh, so Wes, any comments on that summary? I, I'm guessing you probably haven't read 10% Less Democracy, but... I have not read 10% Less Democracy. Um, and right away I'm noticing that a lot of work is being done by what the author considers bad policies. Um, I would certainly believe that in an election year, senators are more responsive to public opinion and are going to vote for policies that are more popular. Um, the fact that they also vote for policies that economists or this particular economist thinks um, are ill-advised, I, I, I'm sure I, I believe that. I, I, I just don't know that I might necessarily agree that these are bad policies. Um, but also, I am s skeptical that it would be desirable to have senators be less responsive to public opinion. Um, even if that, in, in the current climate, in the current way things are structured, that results in worse policies. Um, but I think my, one of my opinions on that is that there is a, um, ba a vicious cycle that happens when um, the public is able to support bad policies and they don't actually get enacted um, because that means there's the public never really feels the consequences for supporting their bad policies. Um, so there's no incentive for the public to really research their policies, to really um, look at which experts to trust and which not. Um, there's no stakes for the general public in deciding which policies to support because their policies generally never get enacted anyway. So I think if we had a system that was actually responsive to public opinion, um, you might start seeing public opinion move in ways that economists would consider better. Yeah, so the the problem with that take um, is that if you have people voting in an election in America, then like even for relatively small states, the probability of someone actually influencing the outcome of, of a, an election is pretty close to zero. So if you had people who actually had a decent... Uh, chance of influencing the outcome of an election, then, yeah, you might actually see people putting in the research to actually vote for people who will enact good policies. But since the expected value of voting from a strictly outcome-based perspective is so low because the, out, uh, the chance of actually being the one to swing the election is so low, you s I don't think you would get that even... Um, if we had something more like a liquid democracy. Uh, you are also right that a lot of work is being done here by, um, by what Garrett assumes are good policies, but Garrett is a fairly moderate, um, 
uh, very empirical economist, so I'd say there's at the very least a strong, strong correlation between what Garrett thinks is good policies and what mainstream economic thought thinks are good policies. So uh, that's easy to say when it's just two guys on a podcast kind of spitballing about his arguments. Uh, If you find that argument potentially compelling, I'd encourage you to read the book where he goes into exactly what policies uh, senators voted for when they were on the ball versus when they weren't, uh, and decide for yourself whether you think we need more immigration restrictions, onerous regulations, etc., etc. Yeah, I mean, the proposition that um, policies that senators support in election years are worse than policies they support when the election is, you know, five years off. Um, I, I don't, I don't find that an extraordinary claim. I think that's rather intuitive, so I'm not really that skeptical of it. Um, so I think for the sake of argument, we can just assume that's true and, uh, discuss the policy in that, with that assumption. Okay. So, uh, with that being the case, um, And, uh, by the way, my crack about deciding for yourself uh, whether you want more immigration restrictions, onerous regulations, etc., that was a joke, so no need to jump down my throat about that. Um, I mean, he does actually go through the, um, through the policies that people support when they're up for re-election versus when they're not. And I do think they are pretty trivially good policies for the listening demographics of this podcast. But um, that was also a little bit of a cheap shot. And if I didn't acknowledge that, I would probably feel guilty. Anyway, uh, so Garrett's contention uh, is basically that uh, the the voting public has two different sets of preferences. Uh, They have preferences over outcomes, which are things like strong economies, their 401ks growing, uh, low unemployment rates, uh, cheap goods in the supermarket, supermarket shelves being full, etc. And then there are the policies that when you ask the public whether or not they sound like a good idea, they'll say yes. And those are policies like migration restrictions, Um, industrial regulation, industrial policy more generally, trade restriction, very burdensome um, regulations of labor and that sort of thing. And um, when you have a senator who is not up for re-election, that senator is thinking, okay, so I have this bill coming up. It's not going to do a great job of creating the outcomes voters want. So I need to think, what are the, the ramifications for these policies going to be four to six years down the line? Versus when they're in the election cycle, they need to think, okay, are my, is, my, is the person I'm going to run against going to be able to make political hay out of this? And when they're on the bubble, they can... 
um, or when they're not on the bubble, rather, they can say, okay, yeah, maybe someone will dig up my voting record on this, but I'll be able to point to the employment rates and say, you want to know what I've done for you lately? This is what I've done for you lately. And so bringing this back to liquid democracy, my worry is that because liquid democracy has so little slack and because the voting population are, uh, as Brian Kaplan, another GMU economist, argues, uh, rationally irrational, they don't follow politics very closely because they're not likely to swing any elections, then you'll just end up with people constantly vote, or legislators constantly voting for whatever uh, policies people say they want when you ask them in polls, and they don't have the slack they need to actually care about what will lead to those good outcomes. Well, I think that's certainly a legitimate worry. Um, it's not something... I'm too concerned about because liquid democracy doesn't work like a normal election. There's no election day where you have to make sure on that day you have the support. Um, from one perspective, you know, election day is every day. So you could look at it and say, oh, well, the pressure is always on. Uh, but from another perspective, you could say the, there's a lot less pressure because you don't have to win an election. You don't you, – your level of support is your level of support. If your level of support drops 10 percent, that doesn't mean you're out of office. That just means you have 10 percent less power. Um, so there's certainly room in there for long plays where you advocate for policies that cause you to lose some support now, but then in five years you get that support back plus some. So it, it's admirable that you're willing to give the voting populace, populace so much credit. Like, the way I see that scenario playing out is I support policy X, my opponent supports policy Y, policy X, it turns out, is actually the good policy, but it's unpopular. I vote for X, my opponent makes an attack ad saying... Oh, my opponent voted for policy X and not policy Y. He wants to kill your dog and blah, blah, blah. Uh, standard attack ad fare. And the way that's going to play out is my support drops from, say, 40% to 30%. Uh, my opponent goes from 40% to 50%. And then... Uh, a few years down the line, when the benefits of policy X actually bear fruit, then my opponent, who's able to, who just for this simple uh, sort of toy model for the argument's sake, let's say he stays at that 50%, when the economy goes up because of the long-run effects of policy X, he's able to say, oh, look, I, who have 50% of the vote, uh, was able to boost this economy, and he'll say that it's because of policy Y, but it's actually because of policy X. I, quote-unquote, deserve credit for the good economy. But it's also really easy to spin that as just like, oh, the sore loser is saying that he was really the one who... Um, 
who uh, uh, was responsible for the good things that happened, but he's just trying to take credit for everything, uh, everything good, and trying to shun credit for everything bad. And so, when you have those sorts of dynamics at play, I think, uh, I think that like the actual practical way that politics would work out in a liquid democracy will end up a whole lot uglier and with a whole lot less ability uh, on the part of the public than you're crediting them for to actually parse who is responsible for these economic effects. Well, I think the problem with that view is it sounds like you're still envisioning a world in which there are only two candidates. Where in a liquid democracy, there's 300 million candidates. Um, so if, I, if I'm running against you, I'm also running against 20 other people who have substantial support. So if I make an attack ad against you and I convince a bunch of people not to vote for you, that doesn't mean they're going to vote for me. They're probably going to vote for the person who's close to you, uh, I, who's closest to you ideologically, but just does didn't do the thing I'm attacking you for. Well, so that's getting into the nuts and bolts of how the how the liquid democracy would actually end up implementing policies in real life. And so, if you had something like, so what what I'm envisioning is something like. Uh, California's proposition system, but with people being able to delegate their votes. And in that case, um, it doesn't seem like that dynamic would sort of play out because you would still have pieces of legislation that called for definite votes and you would need to get a coalition together to beat whatever threshold there uh, is required to get this legislation passed. And then you'll be able to make attack ads against the coalition. And sure, it has a few more steps than and a few more nuances than the really simple model I was giving for the argument's sake. But it doesn't seem obvious to me that even if you accounted for those, that it would actually change the dynamics at play. Yeah, I mean, I think the most the closest analog that I envision, I think, is the British Parliament system. Um, because at least what used to be the case is they could just call for a vote at any time. Um, so you'd have a governing coalition, and it would be done it's done by proportional representation. Anyone could vote for whatever party they want. Um, and if one party doesn't get 50% of the vote, then they have to form a coalition with a different party to run the government. And at any time... Um, there can be a, a call for a new election, and then they hold a new vote. Um, so that's sort of similar. You know, there's a lot of interference in there, but it's it's sort of similar to what we're going for in uh, in liquid democracy. And I agree, it's not a panacea. It doesn't solve all the problems. Um, but I guess the fundamental question here is: Do we want actual democracy? Like, do we want the policies people support to become law and i want that because i think there's no there's no better way to do it i i don't think you can get uh, a system where we're ruled by wise masters who who know better than us um i think what we what we end up with is just grifters who 
you know, tell the public what they want to hear, and then behind closed doors, you know, enrich themselves and enrich their, uh, you know, the people that they are indebted to or in bed with or what have you. Well, yeah, but the trick of setting up a political system is making it so that the way that they enrich the themselves and their cronies is by passing good policy. And uh, in and Garrett contends that, um, and I should say Garrett is a big fan of Singapore, so if he were here, uh, he would point to uh, Singapore, especially when it was under Lee Kuan Yew of a case where that very much didn't happen, though I would say in response to that that uh, Singapore was a little bit of... Um, little bit of lightning in a bottle and you really don't want to implement a dictatorship betting on the <laughs> dictator being Lee Kuan Yew. Um, I think I can agree with that. Yeah. But uh, anyway, but that does get into uh, the dichotomy that Garrett was talking about where the policies that people say they want when they're uh, talking to pollsters or even going into voting booths aren't necessarily the policies that will get them the outcomes they want. And uh, to go, or to get a full explanation of why exactly that is, I'd recommend um, Brian's book, The Myth of the Rational Voter, uh, where he talks a lot about political biases and how um, people tend to really not like things like... Um, uh, free trade, immigration, uh, people telling them that things will are going well and that they will continue to go well. People like to be whipped up into a panic, um, and so I like it, it's kind of hard to just spitballing on a podcast again to convincingly argue against that point. But I will just say that like if you look into the empirical data as Garrett and Brian have done, I, I think you're just not on the right side of this argument. And I would encourage people who uh, want to actually take a deep dive into that data to check out uh, Garrett and Brian's books. Well, I, uh, I, I certainly hope you're not defending the status quo, but we're talking about, you know, liquid democracy is kind of a pie in the sky fantasy. Um, so I guess my question is, what's a better system? If not, if you're not going to let the people decide the policy, who gets to decide? Well, so I am an anarchist. Uh, if we're talking pie in the sky, then uh, um, I would be in favor of anarchy, where people's ability to decide policy is completely contingent on their wallets and how much they're willing to spend and it's extremely difficult to uh, implement policy for anyone other than you uh, and of course you can look at um, David, I know I'm throwing out a lot of book titles here but I read a lot of books, what can I say um, I would uh, refer people to David Friedman's um, the machinery of freedom for the nuts and bolts about how that works uh and for a somewhat more mo uh, modest proposal i would 
refer people to 10% less democracy, uh, because I think Garrett does a very good job marshalling the evidence that if we had longer term limits, then we would in fact have legislators optimizing more for policies with good outcomes and less for policies which uh, poll well. Uh, well, so, okay. Assume for a minute that there is a government, because I feel like yeah, whether we're, if we're debating about anarchy, you know, I feel like yeah, that's that, a separate that's bonus for episode. a different Patreon yeah. episode. Um, but, like, assume there is a government, then then how 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 do we decide who's running it? Because I, I don't like the current system. I don't know if anyone does. So the, so the current system plus a few other incremental changes are what Garrett proposes, mm -hmm. and he's thought and researched this a lot more than I did. Uh, some other ideas of his, in addition to lengthening term limits, are um, having... Uh, for every 10% debt-to-GDP ratio, add another seat to the Senate to be filled by representatives of bondholders, uh, the same way that corporate boards have seats for corporate bondholders. Uh, and his argument for why that we should do that is because people who hold bonds tend to have uh, what economists call low time preference, which is basically just that they're patient uh, they're willing to um, to forego uh, current pleasure for the sake of more pleasure in the future. Um, and uh, because bondholders tend to be patient, they're more likely to vote for uh, things that will have uh, good payouts far down the line in 10, 15, 20 years rather than uh, having to be so myopically focused on the next election cycle. So if we're, if we're not going for a pie-in-the-sky fantasy, then I just go with those sorts of um, more incrementalist uh, changes where we're generally trying to set up the system so that patient people are more rewarded. Uh, now, if you don't mind my uh, turning that question against you, you've acknowledged that liquid democracy is pretty pie in the sky as well. So what sort of incremental changes would you like to see implemented? Uh, so incremental change. Well, first, I feel like what you're proposing is um, plutocracy. Um, I mean, that's not what I'm proposing, but you can <laughs> you can argue that what I'm proposing would result in plutocracy. Yeah, I feel like what you're talking about is well, we should uh, you know the the people with the money they should they should be the ones making the decisions. Yeah, you don't actually need to be that rich to hold U.S. government bonds. You just need like thirty bucks. But uh, I'm sure, but I bet if you looked at the numbers and it's not just the people with the money it's the people with the money who are willing to put it into a 30 year long uh investment with a five percent annual interest rate which is not very high meaning those people are very patient yeah i'm just saying if you look at who actually holds those bonds i would guess it's wealthy people I mean, you're not wrong, but wealth is correlated with education, intelligence, um, general uh, patience, and 
it, it's correlated with a lot of things that are not necessarily uh, bad traits for a legislator to have. Um, and again, and again, Garrett goes into much, much more detail. So you are getting the very short and very crappy version of his much better argument. All right. But in terms of incremental changes, what I'd like to see uh, is just removing a lot of the veto points in the current system, as many as possible. Because I do want the policies that people support to be the actual policy. Um, I think we would have better outcomes because of what I was saying at the beginning. I think that um, while the public is generally, you know, uneducated, myopic, and foolish, um, I think if you give them a reason to make better decisions, they'll make better decisions. Um, and I think that in the past the public has made better decisions um, when they and I think the less insulated people are from the consequences of their decisions then the more incentive they will have to make better decisions I agree with you there and that's why I'm an anarchist yeah but um but the problem is it's really hard to get more insulated from the consequences of your decisions than you are voting in America. Because, like, even in very small state, uh, very low population states... Actually, let me look this up real quick. Yeah, so Wyoming is the least populated state with a mere 572,000 people. Uh, so... If you are one amongst 572,000 voters voting in, say, a senatorial election, because I don't care to look up the smallest congressional districts, like, it, it doesn't matter how short term limits are or how many veto points there are in the system, you're probably not going to put a lot of research effort into that just because, like, the odds of you being the one to swing the election are pretty small. So you're right that people do definitely feel the impact of the person who actually gets elected on their lives. Uh, that That's actually not super true, but again, that's a discussion for a different bonus episode. But um, people feel, at least to some extent, the impact of the people who are elected on their lives, but there's not that much connection between them pulling the lever in the voting booth and who gets elected. And as long as you don't have a system where you can bridge that gap, then you're probably not going to get people voting responsibly just because there's such a tiny chance of them influencing the election. And if you wanted to talk about a system where, like, five people were randomly selected from the U.S. population to make the decision... In some sense, that is just as democratic because the people are randomly selected, but those five people are the people who make the decision, and so they're probably going to think really hard and do a lot of research. But when you're just one voter amongst at least 572,000, then I, I don't see that there's any incentive at all to actually do that research. And again, empirically... People don't do that research, 
And you can read Brian Smith of the Rational Voter for the full explanation. Yeah, I don't think people are going to do tons of research. Um, but I do think that people right now support a lot of policies and will continue to support them for years and years and years because they'll, will, they're not actually tried. And even when the majority of the public supports a policy, if it doesn't get enacted, then people never see the results of that policy. Um, and I think right now you have a situation where more than ever in the country's history, people are voting on culture war issues. Um, and I think that is has something to do with the fact that people's policy preferences are not being reflected in the government. The the filibuster has been used, you know, orders of magnitude more than it has in the past. Um, the parties have learned that obstructionism is a better path to re-election than compromise. Um, so the the federal government, at least, is really unable to do much of anything um, because we have so many veto points. And I think if we want, I, I think if we removed some of those veto points, then people's votes would actually translate into policy and people would see the results of those policies and then have have opinions about them that reflected the actual outcome uh, instead of just whatever culture war issue they've linked to them. So I am not sure that that's like actually true um i'm not sure it's true either and and like this this is that's again this is just a constraint of the medium but like that is an empirical claim and i don't have any basis for evaluating it uh other than garrett and brian's research that says people say that they like these policies when you ask them in polls but as long as you get these outcomes, they seem to be pretty happy. Right. But look at something like the Iraq War. It had huge sure. support at the time it was started. And then we sure. did it. It turned out to be a disaster. And by the time it ended, it, the support was in the toilet because they actually did it. And people saw what happened and they changed their minds. Um, and I think there's so many policies so, that people well, support. So hang on, hang on, hang on, hang on. The the Iraq War's su- public support was in the toilet for, I think, like literally a decade before it ended. Right. So if if policy was actually responsive to people's preferences, then we would have pulled out way earlier. Yeah. That's exactly what I'm saying. I want to have policies that are responsive to people's preferences. The Iraq War is an example of people changing their preferences based on what actually happens. Yeah, no, I I don't think that's necessarily the case. Like, I think if we hadn't invaded Iraq in 2003, then if you had pulled people in, say, 2012, hey, do you think that we should invade Iraq? They probably, like, probably their public support would be more or less indistinguishable from where it actually was. Where, where it was before we went in or where it is now? No, where... No, where it was in 2012 in this timeline. 
Oh, no. See, I completely disagree. I think if we had never invaded... Sorry, you, th- you think there would be public support for an Iraq invasion in 2012 if we hadn't invaded in 2003? Uh trying to remember what the hell was going on in 2012 yeah yeah no like my opinion is that just people have the and this is also garrett's opinion whereby opinion i mean the conclusion he came to after researching the problem very thoroughly for a few years is that people have when it comes to politics people have the memory spans of goldfish and as long as the unemployment numbers are low and their 401ks are going up, then they won't really care what happened um, a few years ago. But they will care about what happened a month ago. And if what happened a month ago was their senator voting for a bill that was a really, really good idea but doesn't sell well, and there are... It's, it's pretty close to consensus that there are such policies that exist, then, like, it, the, the senator's going to get kicked out of office, and all the good policies that they voted for won't matter because the most recent thing in the minds of the extremely impatient and uh, not very conscientious electorate is them voting for something that was unpopular. Yeah, I mean, this just brings us back to the question of do we want public support to dictate policy? Yeah, I mean, that. Fun, that's fundamentally why I brought up the Scott Alexander post. Right. Because what this debate boils down to is do we think that popular policies and policies which have good outcomes are, to what extent do those overlap, and I would contend with the with the support of Garrett and Brian's research that they don't overlap very much at all. Well, I, I think they do, and I think you're kind of ignoring the, f- the history there because there are – you know, you're looking at the big policy debates of the current moment, which are generally debates between two arguable policies. But if you look back through history – there have been tons of really awful policies that have actually been tried and have turned out terribly, and now nobody supports them because we've seen that they're, they're awful. Yeah, but there's also policies that have been tried and turned out to be awful that have a ton of public support. See, I like feel like you and socialism. I socialism. I feel like you and I are going to disagree about that. Actual socialism has very little support. Uh, yeah, I know that was that that was a cheap shot, but but I mean it is true though. But I feel like you're talking about things like Social Security and Medicare, which have tons of support, and you think are terrible policies, but I think are good. Uh, so so I'm actually talking about things like immigration restrictions, which are wildly popular on the right, uh, have until very recently been fairly popular on the left. They're now less popular on the left, but. Those are still fairly popular policies, and if they were repealed, then global GDP would double, and uh, global inequality would go way, way down. And like that, from a consequentialist perspective, something like open borders would be like inarguably a good thing, 
But the reason it doesn't happen is because when you ask the American voting public whether they want open borders, like, even, even like, fairly moderate leftists and fairly moderate libertarians say, mm, total open borders seems like it might be a bad thing, when in fact, all the economic research we have say it would be one of the best things that ever happened. Well, I feel like you're, uh... Not quite stating the case as it is. Uh, open borders would certainly be good for the world, but it wouldn't necessarily be good for America. Not to bring up another book, but Brian Kaplan's Open Borders, The Science and Ethics of Immigration makes a very compelling case that it would in fact be good for the average American. And the reason why is just that the secret to mass consumption is mass production, and when we have cheap, cheap, highly productive workers in America making things, then we are able to buy those things for cheaper than if those workers were stuck in the less productive third world. That is a book I've read, and I recall Kaplan conceding that full, unrestricted open borders, the case for it being good for Americans is much less certain than the case for it being good for the world and that he understands anxieties about the the idea that um, allowing open borders might actually have adverse impacts on the host country. So he says it's less certain, but it's less certain in the sense that it's 99.99% certain that it'll be good for the world, and merely 95% certain that it would be good for the receiving country. I think that's extremely overstating the case. But also... Uh, do you, so do you want me to go grab my copy of Open Borders and find the relevant passage? Because I totally will. <laughs> Figures that the one book I'm referencing in this conversation that I actually have within arm's reach is the one that's partially visual, and uh, I can't just read the passages to you. I mean, it's mostly talk bubbles. Um, but anyway, Kaplan, uh, Brian Kaplan's kind of a unique fellow. I mean, he's a unique fellow in that he's one of the few people who actually takes economic theory and data seriously, yeah. which is not a knock on Kaplan as far as I'm concerned. No, no, no. I, I'm not saying Kaplan's wrong. I'm just saying I, I understand the public not supporting these policies because not a lot of people are advocating for them uh and not a lot of uh, you know i almost never hear economists advocating for open borders and i you know i see economists commenting on things a lot i see economists in the news i see economists views of policy and kaplan's really the only one um i ever see advocating for open borders yeah, but have you ever seen any economists advocating for immigration restrictions? I'm going to go ahead and answer that to you. No, you haven't, because there's only one of them, and his argument is that it will make uh, high school dropout native-born Americans modestly less uh, well-off than they are right now. Yeah, but I think if you... I don't like, think... Like, the only reason why there aren't more economists advocating for open borders is just because most economists, quite frankly, don't have the strength of their convictions. And if they <laughs> took economic theory and data seriously, then they would be on open borders just like Brian is. 
Well, I just want to say that, uh, you know, immigration, if you look at actual public opinion on immigration, it's it's generally divided. There's not the, – the, the public is not overwhelmingly against um, increases. So that's if you ask, do they want more immigration? Yeah. But the economists who have looked at this – especially Brian, because he's actually willing to take his own data seriously, say that the biggest gains would come from full open borders. And if you ask people about open borders, most of them will bulk. And those few that aren't are people like us who are just total wonks and crazy leftists who see that as like, a really, really powerful way to signal their own leftism and who, like, if they actually were sitting in the room with the button that would tear down the walls, would at least hesitate seriously before pushing it and just, like, say they support open borders as a belief in attire type. But that's fine! I'm against full open borders right now. Okay, well, you're wrong! Right, but I very well may well be, but it's totally reasonable to want to do things incrementally. Uh, It's totally reasonable to say, like, hey, maybe completely changing the system all at once might create some... It is a lot less certain than changing things gradually. Um... I think it's totally reasonable to say I, you know, I support increasing immigration substantially every year until either things start going bad or we get to open borders. Okay, yeah, but that that policy proposal that you just described, that's that would be a wildly unpopular policy if a poll were to ask about it. It's not that it's not that people are worried that there might be some sort of unknown unknown lurking out there where when we have enough immigration the planet explodes. It's just that people don't like migrants and like even people who think of themselves as like good progressive leftists after a certain point they'll balk. And there's no reason to from economic theory. It's just that people don't understand economics very well. And to a certain point, partisan affiliation will carry them to supporting immigration if they're leftists. But that'll only take them so far. I mean, I feel like I also feel like this is a particularly bad uh, example because uh, I, I feel I will like grant, I will grant that I did cherry pick this example specifically because it's a very clearly good policy from an economic perspective that is very widely unpopular. So most policies will not be as clear cut as this one, and I will grant that. Well, but I also feel like this policy in particular, people are not against it for economic reasons. I feel like people are against it for racism related reasons. Like, I mean, sure, but isn't that a good reason why we shouldn't make policy based off of the policy preferences of racists? But then, but again, the only alternative, the only alternative is to is to put our wise masters in charge. If by wise masters you mean economists, then what's the problem? <laughs> well, yeah, that was that was being facetious. Yeah. I know what the problems are. Don't at me. But, uh, <laughs> Um, I mean, if if you, if I would totally support the proposal of putting the economists in charge over the status quo. Uh, but I, I just feel like 
if we other countries have systems that are more responsive to the will of the public than we do and i think they get better policy outcomes i think you know great britain with their parliamentary system um sometimes gets terrible outcomes like brexit because people are stupid um but overall tends to get better outcomes than we do they things people want tend to happen um and mostly it works out fine whereas in our system nothing happens which i think is not good yeah i mean what i think garrett would say if he were here is the reason why things don't happen in our system is because you have voters keeping a very close watch on politics and especially you have an ogre in the white house who is very loud about uh advertising it whenever anyone shows the tiniest shred of disloyalty to the great leader and like what that is is donald trump acting as a way to make legislators accountable to the voters and the voters are trump cultists uh, and so, like, the the reason why I think you see better outcomes in Britain are because, to a certain extent, the legislature is more decoupled from the, um, from the voting public because, like, they don't have a single monolithic executive. I'm pretty sure they don't have that they don't um uh that they don't televise parliamentary proceedings like we do i don't know whether or not they uh publish voting uh records which i mean we barely do anymore because god knows we basically never have actual written ballots in the legislature anymore but if we did then it's not clear to me that that would make things better uh so yeah i'm i agree with you on the on the proposition that britain generally has better outcomes i'm just not sure that it has better outcomes because the british system in some way reflects better the preferences of the british public uh, I think that it is painfully obvious that the reason nothing happens in our system is that it has way more veto points than most other systems. Um, that there are, you know, committees and the president and both houses of Congress, one of which is wildly undemocratic, um, and they're often in different party hands and, and even sometimes individual senators can, can stop bills from happening and it's just there are so many points along the way from bill to law that some person or body can stop it and, I, and, and that I think that is why we get so few actual things happening now why that whether that translates into better or worse policy, um, that's up for debate. But I think one of the main differences between our system and parliamentary systems is parliamentary systems much better reflect what people actually want. So I wonder if we had um, something like Garrett's proposal where we had those longer term limits, 
but we also like eliminated filibusters and um and uh committees and all the uh veto points as you describe them we'll keep the presidential one just because there's got to be something but um do you think that that would be on net a better change or a worse change better okay yeah to a certain extent it feels like we've been talking past each other a little and i think the reason why is because like i think there are uh there are there are ways to like make Pareto improvements so to speak where we both have um where we both have uh legislators who are more beholden to the outcomes that the public wants rather than the policies that they want but we can also have like more functionality and uh more accountability to those policies that the public wants than uh a bunch of veto points with plausible deniability yeah well so one of the things i would like to see is I would like the president to be able to make laws unless they're vetoed by either house of Congress. I, I'm sorry. <laughs> I do not want Donald Trump able to make laws. Thank you very much. No, I and do. Apparently that's the standard for the sorts of presidents we need to take into consideration. Well, uh, yeah, but I think the reason Donald Trump still has so much support is because he hasn't been able to do any of the things he wants to do. Donald Trump doesn't have that much support. Like, he's down to pretty much just the nut of people who are going to vote Republican no matter what. And that's pretty close to it. And he's doing his damnedest to piss those people off. He's got 43%. It's the exact same amount he's had his entire presidency. Yeah, that's the Republican nut. But that's, the, that's who got him elected. Yes, because... Clinton managed to piss off her nut and didn't appeal to literally anyone else. I'm saying if Trump actually did what he wanted to do, people would see the results. And I think at least maybe 5% would change their minds. I mean, sure, maybe 5% would change their minds as the darkness closed in around us and the last lights died. But if that happened, then, like, like I said, I want either House of Congress to be able to veto the law. So it's really – you're not creating a, a fundamentally different system because the system we have is the House, the Senate, and the President all have to agree to pass the law. That's the same, that's the same system I'm proposing. I'm just saying if the House and the Senate are gridlocked and can't – and refuse to vote, which is what happens now – then they, they've abdicated their responsibility and they don't get to be a part of it anymore. So I think what you just – all you'd see in that situation is that the House and Senate would actually vote on things instead of just letting them die in committee or refusing to hold a vote. That does not seem even remotely obvious to me, but I think we've probably done <laughs> enough wild speculation for one evening. Uh, probably. All right. Well, this has been a Mind Killer special episode. Uh, join us soon for your regularly scheduled program.